First on film and entertainment, it is a delight to be with Peter Krause and Greg King. Gentlemen, you both are well, Gregory. Yes, I'm well. Yourself? Look, it's getting closer to the end of the year. It's gone very quickly, Peter, hasn't it? I mean, you know, the love in between you and I knows no bounds, correct? (laughs) That is absolutely correct. (laughs) Yes, I mean, you know, so I'm sitting hoping that some sense will be talked into you from year to year. It never happens. You and I vehemently disagree on almost everything. It's wonderful. I, I Look, I reckon I've got a movie that you're going to like that I'm going to like. There we go. And I start off on a really positive footing today because we want to talk about Salt Burn. What a bombshell of a film this is, gentlemen. Firstly, without talking anything further about it, did you like it, Peter? Yes. Lovely. Gregory? Yes. Fantastic. All right. Cord, what can I say? This is what the world needs. 131 minutes. M.A. rated. I tell you what, the rules of engagement are constantly shifting in this film. Slow burn, yeah, but when the axe falls, it's anything but blunt. And along the way, some seriously outrageous moments. The writer and director, Emerald Fennell, and she went whack, did she not, with Promising Young Woman. That really made its mark as well. And she set out to make a film about love. More specifically, the kind of locust, scorched earth, cannibal love you feel at a certain age. So this is a modern gothic romance in which class, power, and sex collide. So you've got Oliver Quick. Tell you what, Barry Keane, what a great actor he is. But what was that movie that he made with um, the Oscar-nominated film with Brendan Gleeson? The yeah. Sorry, we all spoke at the same time then. Greg, go again. The Banshees of Inisherin. Yes, indeed. He was an Eocene stealer in that one. So Oliver Quick is the character he plays here. He presents at Oxford University in 2006 as this friendless scholarship student from a troubled home. He's very well-spoken. He's reserved. The only one seemingly interested in forming a connection with him is this awkward maths nerd who sort of follows him around. But Quick is drawn to a guy who I'll call Mr. Popularity, the aristocratic Felix Caton, played by Jacob Alordi, who is never short of company, and whom girls line up to be with. Much like you, Greg, yeah? The girls just line up, correct? I don't know about that. Hey, what are they missing out on, my friend? What are they, you know, this is, you know, we're getting towards the end of the year. What a catch you are. Anyway, while Kate doesn't know that Quick exists, that changes when a goodwill gesture on Quick's part plays out. And really, it's appreciated by Kate. So the two become friends. And at the end of the university year, when Quick makes it clear that he has no desire to spend the holiday season at home, his own home, Kate invites him to his palatial abode. And it really is that beautiful place, let me tell you. Complete with an abundance of hired help, Quick comes face to face with a series of rather bizarre and entitled figures. That includes Kate's parents, Elspeth, played by Rosamund Pike, and Sir James Richard E. Grant. Sister Venetia, Alison Oliver, and cousin Farley Start, Archie Medique. Start, Farley Start, is at university with Quick and Caton, but he and Caton aren't exactly enamoured with one another. So lots of money is spent, no expenses spared. Quick isn't exactly prepared, though, for the family quirks that are part of the equation. Some of their behaviour, the family's behaviour, well... I'd, I'd say it's decidedly offbeat and also provocative, but as the saying goes, that ain't the half of what goes down in Saltburn. The, the longer that this film progressed, the more my mind turned to movies like Dangerous Liaisons and The Talented Mr. Ripley. In this case, though, expect the unexpected. There is no shortage of that. Emerald fennel shocks and delights in equal measure. This is a movie in which patience is rewarded. And look, among the the shocks is a bathtub scene that my wife just absolutely cringed at when she there was this sort of intake of breath and, oh, no, oh, no, you can't unsee it once you've seen it. And there's another scene involving an outdoor sexual episode beneath Quick's bedroom at the manor that is known as Saltburn, hence the title. So we, the audience, never know what's next in store for Quick and the movie is all the better for that approach. The the score, I thought, the music in this, Anthony Willis is responsible, who did Megan, really polished and poised, the, the music. Barry Keehan, wow, picture of restraint and conviction in one of, I reckon, the roles of his career. He's kind of like an animal watching and waiting for the right time to strike. 
Jacob Elordi, fundamentally laid back and likeable as the pretty rich boy, shining light to whom others are drawn. Archie Madiqui, the manipulative outsider that knows he's onto a good thing. Rosamund Pike, ah, oh, loved it. As a wow of a time as Elspeth's elegant, judgmental mother. And Richard E. Grant plays her aloof husband and he has breakout joy, joyous moments, does he not? And you've got Kerry Mulligan, small role, boldly coloured hair. She makes a mark as Elspeth's needy younger friend, Pamela. The lure of the hunt is positively intoxicating for the key protagonist in Saltburn, as it is for us, the audience. And Fennell's film leaves this indelible impression. Just prepare for a wild and wicked ride. That's all I can say. Saltburn, MA rated, runs for two hours and 11 minutes. What did you think of it, Greg? I liked it. It's, it goes in unexpected directions, and you're never quite sure um, where it's headed. But it's a dark comedy thriller about obsession, excess, gender, sex, power, privilege. And it's a debauch cross between the challenge of Mr. Ripley and Brideshead Revisited, I thought. Um, mm. Barry Keegan is, as you said, really good in this. He, this is probably one of his best performances there. And there's so much going on beneath the surface there. While you see on the surface, it's quite a sort of sociopathic personality there. And he's got this sort of chameleon-like ability to inhabit these often creepy and sometimes unlikable characters he plays on screen, such as in The Killing of a Sacred Deer. And here he uses his slightly shifty-looking features, his sort of hunched-over posture, and facial expressions to good effect here. And that scene in which he dances naked through the halls of Saltburn is not easily forgotten either, Alex. No, that's and true. That's all those other scenes you referenced there. Um, Elordi, I think, has a casual seductive charm, but his character, I thought, remained a little bit underdeveloped there. I thought Grant and Pike did really good there. They brought a lot of humour to the material, and it looks fantastic, too, with the cinematography there. Linus Sandgren bathes it in oversaturated golden palette there, and the production design, I thought, for the sprawling family mansion um, was great, too, and allows family audiences to immerse themselves into this environment of wealth and privilege. This is a, a step up from Promising Young Woman, I thought. It shows that Emerald Fennell has grown in confidence and has got a lot more ambition with this film, I thought. Mm, now, Peter, if you play your cards right, maybe you can get an invite for all of us to this particular mansion, Saltburn. I reckon that'd be a, a nice place. That'd be a wow of a time, wouldn't it, if we, we sort of got the chance to, to go along maybe maybe over the summer, eh? Hey? Can you can you organise that for us, please? Uh, yes, I would deal with it now. And I, I expect just, that. Uh, I'm just, Nothing uh, less. Speed dialing it. Yeah, exactly. That's that's you know you, you've got your connections, so you know I expect I, I expect positive results when we speak next week, Peter. So, did you enjoy the film though? <laughs> I did enjoy Saltburn because of its darker nature about uh, a, a character who infiltrates a, uh, a group of. Um, higher level, high middle class sort of people with a very expensive mansion. And it's interesting that Emerald Fennell, who uh, won the Oscar for Best Screenplay for Promising Young Woman, has delved uh, even more deeply into the darker side of human behaviour. In fact, this film, apart from what Greg said quite rightly, Brighthead Revisited and, and you mentioned Talented Mr Ripley, etc., reminded me of Entertaining Mr Sloan and Terem. They're two films that deal with a young man who infiltrates a, a fairly wealthy group of people and uh, wants to satisfy all of them, or does he? It, it, it deals with sexuality in a, in a very intriguing sort of way, or bisexuality perhaps, and, and the whole notion of, of this family that accepts the character that Barry Keehan plays, uh, and then discovers other things, which we won't spoil, uh, I, I found so interesting indeed. Uh, with Barry Keegan, uh, and I'm, I'm glad uh, Greg that you mentioned Killing of a Sacred Deer, he has this ability to play um, that sort of benign character that might have underlying um, some uh, issues or concerns or psychological difficulties. I should also add that one of the producers of this film was Margot Robbie, who was perhaps going to be playing one of the characters, either Rosamond's or, or Carey's role, but she decided not to. She was busy with other things. Um, 
Look, overall, I found this a very impressive, darkly constructed film. I also admired the fact that Fennell used Academy ratio, 4-3 ratio. Yeah, well, which I, means, why do you think that is? But... Uh, it, it's, I suppose it's to concentrate on character because it restricts our view. It's a smaller screen. Uh, and so we really have to concentrate on people rather than on um, background and atmosphere and, and the, the grounds that Saltburn was on and all that, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it can be very effective in controlling the way we view what is going on on screen. Anyway. Well, there's a couple of things, Peter, which is interesting. Barry Keehan is only 31. He's got a huge future. I mean, he's an Irish actor. And you know that they're doing the second version of Gladiator. They're, they're, they're sort of about to complete filming on that or about to ent- entertain that because the director of Napoleon is directing Gladiator like he did Gladiator 2. He, he did Gladiator 1, of course, 20 years ago. So yeah. he's, he's going to be in that one. I've... Again, I can imagine that he's, he's going to do a wonderful job. And he's also going to be in the, the second part of Dune, of course. So he's got a really bright future. And and as far as the director is concerned, I mean, she's only 38 years of age. What, both of these, I, I'm really, it's kind of like, you know, you've got certain directors, you, you long for the next movie that they, they bring out. I think Emerald Fennell has that quality about her, don't you? Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, she already has an Oscar to her name, and and I wouldn't be surprised if Saltburn also features in, on the Oscars list for this year. Even the titles, the 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 colouring and the way that the titles, it, it, there's something I, I don't know what you what, what uh, typeface you know, it's not old Roman or whatever. But even even that, everything was really considered, and it just when it when it all comes together, you think, oh my golly, you know, it just it's that sort of movie, and. I kind of want to shout from the rooftops, folks, go along and see it and just stick with it because it do, it doesn't necessarily, the best movies sometimes take a while to percolate. And I think Saltburn's one of those, don't you, Peter? Oh, absolutely right. Again, because of the darker aspects of the story, it it it's one of those films that will, be, will get a cult following, I think. Yes, it will. Absolutely. All right. So let's get a score out of 10. Saltburn, as I said, MA rated 131 minutes. Peter? Really liked it. Eight out of 10 for me. And Gregory King? Seven and a half. And eight for me as well. There we go. Jair, 88 FM. There are the good times. Keep rolling. Well, well, there was. So, I think I've stolen that from somebody else. So uh, please don't sue me. But yeah, the good times do keep on rolling. Keep on listening. If you want to become a member of our community, fifty-four bucks a year, and just go to j-air.com.au and you can sign up. Please think about it. Now let us talk about another. There, there's sort of three different kinds of movies that were released. There probably more than that this week. But another one that I I wanted to talk about. When, when the Hunger Games first came out, it really made a massive splash. It's hard to believe. I mean, the last of those came out four, eight years ago now. And, and this one, The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, is two hours and 37 minutes, and it is a prequel. So it, the, the franchise, if you like, refreshes with what is a forerunner to what we saw going back, well, I think it started about 15 years ago or something, did it not? but a long time ago. Yes, I was invested because I watched the first three Hunger Games and, well, there was four actually because one was broken into two parts. I thought, yeah, okay, where where are we heading? Well, it's the story of the evolution of the eventual president of Panem, which was the role that was filled by Donald Sutherland in the original Hunger Games. And in this case, it's Tom Blythe who plays 18-year-old Coralinus Snow. And he's seen the family's name fall from grace in a post-war capital. And he lives with his gentle cousin, whose name is Tigress, played by Hunter Schaefer, and also grandmother, grandmother known as Grandmam, played by Fanula Flanagan. But times are pretty tough for everybody, and Songbirds and Snakes looks at the early days of the Hunger Games, exploring the genesis of its showmanship and spectacle. So it delves into the origins of the Panem's authoritarian rule as well. So with his livelihood threatened, Snow reluctantly accepts the assignment to mentor Lucy Gray Baird, played by Rachel Zegler, who was in West Side Story, in the 10th Hunger Games. And Baird is a feisty tribute from the impoverished District 12. 
He's got a beautiful singing voice. Also has the ability to capture the eyeballs of viewers, which is really critical because you want people viewing when the Hunger Games are on. So it's a really critical element to this instalment, The Ballad of the Songbirds and Snakes. And basically, prior to that, audience interest has waned. And it, it's where Snow sees a way to carpe diem, sees the day, and improve both his and Bear's situation by taking risks and breaking rules. Unexpected romance follows, but the situation is fraught. Snow tries to take the high road, but troubling episodes see him turn. And wanting to see him fall is the Academy's morally conflicted Dean Highbottom, played by Peter Dinklage, who dresses in black and, and drinks too much. He, he's the one who bears the burden of guilt for setting the games in motion, along with Snow's father, Crasus, who's no longer with us. He was once a powerful figure in the capital. The games actually began as a joke, uh, to devise punishment that was so extreme that the districts could never forget how badly they wronged Panem. And it was Snow's father who took Highbottom's idea for the Hunger Games and ran with it. Viola Davis, she steps into the role of the evil Dr. Volumnia Gaul, who's the Academy instructor and also the head games maker. She spearheads initiatives to increase the capital's public investment in the games. And under her watch, early versions of betting, sponsorship and mentors are introduced to make the games more entertaining. And it's her job to ensure they continue to serve their purpose. She's the mastermind behind the capital's experimental weapons division. And her lab hosts this horrifying menagerie of genetically altered animals called mutations. And she's particularly... She has a particularly twisted use for venomous snakes. Now, another in the cast of note is Sejanus Plinth, played by Josh Andre Rivera, also from West Side Story, who plays Cornelius Snow's fellow Academy student and another tribute mentor. And he and Snow have a, an uneasy relationship. Making his mark as the Hunger Games' first broadcast host is weatherman and amateur magician Lucretius Lucky Flickerman, played by Jason Schwartzman. In previous instalments, that was a role memorably played by Stanley Tucci as his descendant, Caesar Flickerman. It's based on the novel by Suzanne Collins, Songbirds and Snakes, is written by Michael Leslie, who did Macbeth, and Michael Arndt, who was responsible for the Hunger Games Catching Fire. Directed by Francis Lawrence, and it's pleasing because he directed the previous three movies in the franchise. Broken into three chapters with tonal shift between those chapters. A lot to unpack here. Familiarity with the franchise would certainly be helpful. I did appreciate the shifts in power and control, the manipulation involved in the screenplay. There is tension, there is unease throughout. Tom Blythe, well, he does much of the heavy lifting. He's solid. Rachel Zegler asserts her authority, presenting as a young woman not to be pushed around. And at times, barely recognisable Viola Davis is a scene stealer. She, she revels in her character's power. Another standout, Peter Dinklage, paints his character with a very dark edge. As I mentioned, a drunk, mere shell of a man on the precipice of destruction. Jason Schwartzman does a good job as the slimy forerunner to Stanley Tucci, the man tasked with bringing the colour of the games to the masses. Look, it's quite visually arresting. I wouldn't say that all of the acting is top shelf, but you know, it, it's a long film, two hours and 37 minutes. But look, for those people who have enjoyed the franchise, uh, I reckon it's it'll be reasonably rewarding. I mean, obviously, one of the great actors of our time played the, the key role in you know the original Hunger Games and how do you replace Jennifer Lawrence? Yeah, it, that, that's a tough ask. But look, this stands on its own. Having said that, I mentioned during the course of what I've just spoken about that it would help if you, you have an understanding of who's who in the zoo to begin with. So that's The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Peter, I don't think you would have liked this. This is not your cup of tea uh, like the previous movie was. Go for it. Yeah, I, I've never been a fan of, of The Hunger Games because of, of its moral turpitude, the way it, it deals with young people as uh, sacrificial lambs to keep districts uh, in this dystopian future happy and not fighting one another, especially also to increase the television ratings, etc. So uh, the underpinning storyline of The Hunger Games is something I, I find quite repulsive. It's it's interesting that... But I think, you meant, I think you meant to, Peter. I mean, that's the whole purpose. It's going yeah. to... The, 
Well, the eco value. There's a there's a you know that's a modern term, but there is there is a very strong eco value, but or factor. But the franchise has done all right. You know, they they wouldn't be making it again unless it made money. Well, of course, and Suzanne Collins, who's written uh, all of the novels that the Hunger Games is based on, um, uh, certainly has made quite a lot of money out of uh, writing these stories. But Francis Lawrence also um, directs, uh, he's come back again to direct this Hunger Games prequel. But that uh, I think the film wallows in that nastiness, that violence, that um, which young people will survive sort of thing. And, and that's what I find quite objectionable. Mm-hmm. It's important to note the film was shot in Germany. Yes, it was shot at Studio Babersberg, which is such a main hub now for uh, um, Hollywood to um, make a, a number of films within their 24 studio complex. It's a massive site. And, and so in terms of the, the, the look and style of the film, it's not bad, even though some of the CGI is a, is a little weak. What, what I found only, the only thing I found interesting was the Shakespearean aspect to mm. the film. The Coriolanus and and his development of a, mm-hmm. a you know a nice sort of character and turning into something less uh, positive and more evil and so on, which is very Shakespearean. Even the music by James Newton Howard is sort of yeah, yeah it's all right, but it's nothing to write home about. Look, I, I found this film overlong. Uh, I, I felt that it became a little bit obvious and repetitive by the time it got to chapter three. And I, I sort of knew where it was heading. So, look, I was a bit disappointed by it, even though I don't like the franchise to begin with. But I thought as a prequel, I expected war, especially as Jason Schwartzman's character was the only lively thing I thought in the film. I thought, now, this could have been more interesting and, and played up the whole idea of media control and, and so on. But it, it didn't quite get that way. So, yeah, overall, I was disappointed. Oh, okay. And what about you, Greg? Did you? I agree with a lot of. Hung... You, didn't hunger... you didn't hunger for the games, Greg. No, it didn't make me hunger for more either. But uh, uh, I agree, it was a bit over long there. Filmed it sort of in two given halves there, uh, totally uneven. I liked the first half, basically, with the Hunger Games, the development of the Hunger Games. And I thought the way they were staged in that stadium there was a lot more gritty and exciting than what came later. I like the Jason Schwartzman character, the sleazy TV um, host, who is obviously Stanley Ch- the father of Stanley Tucci's character in the later ones there. But I thought the second half just sort of was a bit wishy-washy, didn't do much for me. And they still haven't explained how the young Coriolanus Snow became president of Pan Am there. I think they need another episode with someone like maybe Kiefer Sutherland playing the role to see how we walk into Donald Sutherland's character. This is one of those young adult things that will appeal to a certain audience, those who like the first couple of hundred games. I don't see anybody else blocking to see this film. Um, a bit ho-hum, I thought. Some of the action was quite well staged. Nothing, none of the performances were anything to write home as far as I was concerned. I thought Tom Bly did a good job as the young Coralanus, and so did Rachel Ziegler as Lucy Baird, but I didn't think they were standouts not like some of the characters in the first film. Well, I, I think I'll give it a higher score than you will then, Greg. So what, what are you going to give The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, M-rated 157 minutes? I'd give it three stars, mainly for the first half. Okay. And and what about you, Peter? I give it five out of ten. All right. So five and six, I'll give it a seven. Because, I was, you, know, I, you know, I still say that the, the acting wasn't what it could have been. But nevertheless, I, I, I got intrigued and I thought... I, funnily enough, Greg, I, I did get more involved as, as the chapters went on. So I suppose I, I you know, it, it, it took me a while, but I thought, yeah, okay, where is this heading? And, and, and I went along for the journey. I did think it was too long, though, too. I agree with that. Let's go to Thanksgiving, which I'll tell you what, <laughs> my wife said uh, she saw the shorts or the trailer and that was enough. For her. She, she thought she'd have a Bex and a lie down. So in the end, she, she went along. And uh, I think she sort of, I mean, it's a blood and gore fest. This is a slasher horror. So it's R-rated for a very good reason. 106 minutes, there's beheadings and lots of other things because a deranged serial killer is on the loose. How many times have we had that line, eh? Anyway, it's a gore fest. Violence is the stock in trade. And we're talking about Thanksgiving 
2022. We're in Plymouth, Massachusetts, which is the birthplace of that national holiday, the, the Thanksgiving. But for many, it's no longer a public holiday because Black Friday sales now start on that day, on the Thursday. And the public's champing at the bit to get their hands on the latest and greatest bargains that come with the sales. It, it always reminds me, remember when it went out of, out of things got right out of whack at Meyer in Melbourne and then they toned things down because there were a few specials that only a few people could get their hands on and, and it was a disaster waiting to happen. So it, it kind of, fortunately, nobody was killed in that. But in this Thanksgiving, obviously, extremes are struck. Pack mentality develops. They, they, these members of the public crash through the closed doors of a department store in this sort of open slather stampede. And in a nightmare scenario, people fall, they're cut, they're bloodied, they're trampled on, they're scalped, and they're killed. A redneck school kid, a footballer called Evan, records the riot on his mobile phone. And a year on, the store's wealthy owner, played by Rick Hoffman, decides to ignore best advice and again open up the retail on that fateful day instead of recognising, you know, in a more decent manner that it's inappropriate. But those involved in and innocent bystanders to the frack a year earlier are now receiving videos of the massacre on their phones. And that includes Jessica who's the centrepiece of a group of teenage friends and the glue that holds everyone together. And also in there is Jessica's bestie, Gabby, Yulia and Scuba. Little did they know it at the time, but a special Thanksgiving dinner's being prepared and it's their heads, quite literally, on the chopping block. And one by one, they're being picked off to meet a rather horrific or a horrific fate. The killer wears this John Carver mask and Carver's the, the first governor or was the first governor of the Plymouth Colony. Sheriff Newland, played by Patrick Dempsey, is a, in a, this race against time to stop the brutal slayings, but he's losing that battle. And to add to the tension, Jessica's caught in a love triangle between a couple of guys who don't like one another. The Eli Roth and Jeff Rendell, uh, Roth directs and the other two of them write the thing. It's an ode to the 80s slasher horror film. In fact, Roth's journey to making this film started back in 20, 2006. His friends, uh, Tarantino and Rodriguez, Quentin and Robert, were working on their double feature Grindhouse. And at the time, Tarantino asked his buddies, including Roth, to create fake trailers that would appeal to the Grindhouse crowd. So the scares in Thanksgiving, I thought they were real. I was scared. Brandon Roberts' score elevates the tension. Nobody is safe. And the killer appears to take great pride and pleasure in stalking and eviscerating his prey. Quite busy sets, there's shade and darkness, a regular bedfellows for the filmmakers to capitalise upon, and that they most certainly do. I was sitting on the edge of my seat waiting for the axe to fall time and again. Dempsey approaches his role as sheriff with empathy and determination, trying to calm the understandable fear that pervades the community. Now, given what's happening around her, the uh, the key teen here, played by Nell Verlacqua remains remarkably calm and level-headed. She plays the character of Jessica. And among the male high school students, there's this sort of boyish meathead mentality. Of course, the, as the plot unfolds, we, the audience, try to work out who's responsible for the carnage. I reckon it's reasonably well disguised. I'm pleased about that. I th think Eli Roth has done a good job with the material. Should satisfy die-hard fans of, of this genre. You know, it's not going to be for everybody, that's for sure. If you're not into heads rolling around and lots of blood and, and gore, then Thanksgiving is not for you. Is it for you, Greg? I like the first half of this film again. The opening scene is one of the best I've seen on screen this year. You're talking, about the, um, you're talking about the stampede, though, not the... Not yeah, the... That, that was a great opening scene then. After that, though, the rest of it's fairly formulaic. We've seen this kind of thing before, a masked killer sorting the streets of the town, Picking off people one by one, you know, everything from Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, to Scream has done it before. So this one doesn't do anything different, except some of the guests, as you said, Alex, are quite boring. There's some inventive ways to kill people in this one. Which... <laughs> it's, it's horrible that we're talking that way, mind you, Greg, but yeah, they... They're, but they're... a bit of fun. You, you, you sort of... Sort of find yourself laughing at some inappropriate moments in this film, I thought. It's um, cartoonish but, um, in that regard. Yeah, yeah, Patrick Schweitzer, Dempsey as the sheriff, not given a lot to do there, but he's quite effective doing what he does. But yeah, some of the characters in this are a little bit unlikable. The ones who set up the riot 
and a couple of them you don't mind them getting picked off. No, it's it's not a nice thing to say. Peter, are, are you into blood and gore? Absolutely, and also oh. in the cinema. Uh, but anyway. Educating <laughs> um, mayhem. We know that about you already, and you've just reinforced the stereotype. Very good. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. I just scream at that comment. But uh, uh, this is an R-rated film, and it's R-rated for a reason, because it is really nasty and violent. And yet, I, I was as I was watching this, I was wondering if this was a film as a training ground for Black Friday and for the Australian Retailers Association, who I'm sure will wallow in yeah. this film about a retailer who goes uh, overboard. And... Not like wallow, I mean, is it giving it a... A fair crack, or is it basically saying don't open on you know don't have these sales? Look, it's hard to say because when you look at the way the film resolves itself and then the post credit sequence, it's almost like well you can see it either way. <laughs> well, I mean, bear in mind that the you, you do you know what the busiest trading day of the year is in America? Do you have any idea? Uh, I would assume Black Friday because that's yes. there's yes, it is. so much time on that. Yeah, it is. So I mean, you know, that there there's again an opportunity for everybody to race out and get bargains and trample on one another. It's always <laughs> no, no. I'm always fearful of it. Do you remember in the city a few years ago? And I really enjoyed going to it, but but it was really dangerous. It was yes. a white night. Do you remember that when Greg? Did you ever go to that or not? I did a couple of times, but as I said, the crowds and everything. Enough to yeah, but, but but it it reminds me because I mean there there was I, I remember going one year and we were in the middle of Flinders Street and basically I lost my wife and oh well no I mean this has happened around the world I might say uh, and it's not convenient in case you boys were thinking that I've lost her in New Zealand for example right I I lost you're I, so careless I yeah I lost her at the Louvre I lost her at the Louvre can you believe that. And she was so angry with me. I didn't do it to you. Blame her. I didn't do it deliberately. You know, and and so I mean, I I've now got my card stamped because basically I I've now got a little bit of a this is the, this is the cheeky side of it. Um, you know how there's six continents. I haven't yet lost her on six continents, so there's a way to go. No, no, I didn't say that. I did not say that on air, Peter. I take that back. No, I love oh. I love my wife dearly. We digress. Get back on a Thanksgiving, please. Wow. Well, that, yeah. what a what a revelation. All right. Um, yes, back to Thanksgiving. Anyway, look, yes, I agree with Greg. The opening sequence in the store uh was very well choreographed and and it was nice to see Gina Gershon in the film as well. She's been in, in many films and she has a, an interesting fate attached to her early on in the film. Look, it, it is fairly obvious in terms of uh, the setup that revenge was going to be sought on the people who suffered during that opening uh, retail stampede. And so there were no particular surprises. Here and there, there were some amusing bits and pieces, if you can call that horror, violence, slasher amusing at times. But look, I didn't mind it. I thought it was a, an okay film with a resolution which was pretty much expected, uh, although that, as I mentioned, that post-credit sequence, um, well, you can interpret that how you like. Anyway, Eli Roth is very good at making these these films, and uh, he's done another good one here, Cabin Fever, Hostel. He knows how to grab an audience by the throat and to do things to them, which they may not possibly appreciate at the end, but nevertheless, he does attract a good audience. I liked it overall. I think it was well done, and... Yeah, as as slasher horror movies go, it, this one is a pretty good one. So, R-rated for very good reason. As Peter says, I totally agree with that. 106 minutes, Thanksgiving, score out of 10, Gregory. Oh, uh, look, uh, six to six and a half. I thought it was better than that, but there you go. Okay. Mate, but... listen, I, I, I found the second half, the slasher bit, formulaic, and, you know, we've seen it all before. Nothing new, apart from the blood. <laughs> apart from the blood. What about you, Peter? Yeah, I, I quite liked it. Seven out of ten for me. Well, yeah, it's funny. Again, Nadine's expectations, I, my expectations were low going in there, and I, I, I thought for what it was, it did it well, even though it was indeed it, it, it sort of capitalised upon what we've seen previously. 
believe it or not, I'm going to give this an eight. I, I really, I thought it did what it, it set out to do something and it, and it achieved exactly what it set out to do. And I dare say that there'll be more installments as a result. And I think it'll do well at the box office. So, you know, for all of those reasons, I'm giving it an eight. So there you go. Now, I want to go back to your childhood. Uh, are you lying on a couch, Peter? You should right. be on a couch. Okay, so if you if if I mention board games, did you ever play? And what board games did you play as a child? What was the most I, What was the most popular one that you played? Uh, look, Scrabble and Monopoly were probably the two I liked the best. Excellent. And and Greg, Scrabble and Monopoly. Uh, yep. Yep. Uh, true. Exactly. Basically. Yep, and they're the ones that I played as well. There is now something. They've taken four years to get this going, boys. And tell you what, it really, I, I just could not believe what I was seeing. It's called Monopoly Dreams. It's at Melbourne Central. They've apparently got a lease for 16 years. They've taken up 10 retail outlets in the basement of Melbourne Central. And I suddenly got a news release about this the day before the media launch. And... I said, why have I never heard about this? Now, okay, it's the most popular board game. It was, here's a Trivial Pursuit question, Greg. Imagine, and your Greg, by the way, folks, is just brilliant at Trivial Pursuit. He's won many competitions around the world, haven't you, doing this? Haven't um, you? Not that I know of. Hang on, didn't you go to England and do well in a Trivial no. Pursuit? No. I thought you did. There you go, I'm inventing it. I, I, I'm fixating on this, Greg. All right, so, but you have one in, yeah, please don't. Sydney, one through the competition in Sydney. Right, and Melbourne. Yeah. There you go. Okay. So when, here's my Trivial Pursuit question without notice. Don't Google it. When was the game patented? Which year? Monopoly, approximately. Will do you. What do you think? I thought it goes goes back to the 30s, doesn't it? Yeah. Well done. Well done. 1935, December 31st. There you go. Parker Brothers and, yeah. Anyway. While it's since morphed into hundreds of localised iterations, the winner-take-all mentality that underpins the game has not changed, nor has its wholesome family appeal, and now it's spawned this delightful, flashy, one-of-a-kind, immersive entertainment, love immersive entertainment experience at Melbourne Central. So, as I mentioned, I had no idea what I was in for, right? I, I thought, oh, yeah, well, it's a throwaway type something, it'll last a little bit and then go, but it was special. Now... I, I took the, in fact, I did this before a film that we saw, what was the Wednesday night film we saw at Melbourne Central? Thanksgiving. Pardon me? Thanksgiving, yeah. Thanksgiving, yeah. So, so that was the double for me, Monopoly and Thanksgiving. Yeah. Anyway, you enter the domain of the world's richest fictional little man called Mr. Monopoly. He, he's, he's about my height, Greg. So there you go, fictional little man. And he started life as a humble, what was it? Is he's my trivial pursuit cat. Question: What do you reckon Mr. Monopoly started life out as? Do you remember? Any of you? Either of you? It's one of the pieces in the board game. No? Started as a humble car mechanic. And you witness how he's elevated his station in life. Now, you wander through a series of Monopoly-themed installations, games, and adventures. And what I found interesting in particular at the start, you look at the evolution of the board game with many versions of it on show. And apparently they've borrowed some of these from a Melbourne lady who has got the third largest Monopoly game board collection in the world. Some of those, obviously, she's led to this exhibition. One of those that stood out for me, and I didn't realise this, the London Olympic Games, which was held in 2012, as a gift to every British athlete competing, you could not buy this they made a special edition of Monopoly. I think that's lovely, actually. I mean, it, it gives it a, a special quality about it. So that's one of the things on, on show here. Now, along the journey, you're encouraged to participate in several games, which win you Monopoly money, of course. Of course it would. And you can spend that in the Monopoly shop that it inevitably is at the end of the, the uh, Monopoly Dreams experience. And among the fun things you can do is try... Do you know those things where... The, there's air blown into a little sort of Superman booth and you, you try to collect as much cash as you can. There's one of those there for 30 seconds. It's a lot of fun. Now, the rules allow... I didn't realise I went in there and I just grabbed it off the floor. And they said, no, 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 you can't do that. You, you, you could, I, so, so I cheated, Peter. 
There we go. Of course yeah. you did. Well, I mean, the Butte part, it, there was a jail in there, of course, but as there is in Monopoly. So I was sent straight to jail and wasn't allowed to collect my $200. There you go. Right? Serves you right. Serves you right. Yes, exactly. I like the moolah flying around and I grabbed it. There we go. Anyway, you can win more money at installations named Waterworks and Electric City. And there's also code you can try and crack in out, crack out of jail. You can, there's a, oh, I like this a lot. You can share the joys of a laser maze. Now, what is that? Basically, you've got Mr. Monopoly's large diamond in a perspex case at the end of a room. And before, between you and the and the diamond are red lines, which are the, the laser, right? And you need to climb over them and climb under them and whatever and get back to where you started from in 60 seconds. And if you do, if you catch the laser more than 10 times, you're beeped out. I, that was that was fun. Now, one of the other highlights, have you guys both participated in 4D movies? Peter, you ever been to a 4D movie? Maybe at, uh, at one of these theme parks or something? No? Uh, is, is that where your, your seat rocks and yeah. you feel as if you're involved in the, yes. yeah, the screen? Yeah. Yep. You've done that in Greek, you too? No, I remember the rocking cinema seats at Earthquake and films like that, though. Yeah, okay. Well, so th this is one of those, but you also get... You get sprayed with a mist of water, and you also oh, yeah. there's also smells, and I couldn't figure it out. I asked them what the smell was, and it was grass. So I, I mean, it's only a three minute sort of film, but basically, uh, it, it's a movie where a bandit tries to steal Mister Monopoly's riches. So yeah, the seats move and showers, mist and smells, and yeah. Anyway, at various junctures also throughout this, and it's really slick. I mean, the whole thing is done. It's beautifully done, really beautifully done. You can take selfies with Mr. Monopoly. And do you know what his dog was called, Greg? Can't remember. Okay. Peter, you wouldn't remember, no? No, no, I wasn't there at the launch. Well, no, no, I mean, it wasn't at the launch. <laughs> you, you, well, hang on, hang on. Monopoly was no. invented at least a few hundred years after you were born. I mean, you you were born in the 1700s, my last last iteration. You know, it's like a tree. I'm counting the, the rings on the stump. So you know, Monopoly came along. You know, you were an old man before Monopoly came along. I understand that. So his dog was named Scotty. There you go. Anyway, you can take... Well, it's a terrier, isn't it? It's a little terrier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Mr. Monopoly and his dog Scotty you can take selfies with. Uh, you can take selfies at... He's got a newsstand. He's got... There's a Melbourne tram in there. His tram and, and there's a, his silver helicopter. So plenty of joy to be had in um, Monopoly Dreams. Now, if you want to, you can choose at extra expense to to play arcade games and you can win plush toys and keychains and Monopoly magnets. They're pretty pretty funky, actually. I, I like a lot of that stuff. Now, the entry pass also allows you to print out a special title deed to a property. I got the Gold Coast. I thought that was fair, fair and reasonable. And Nadine got the MCG. I wouldn't mind owning the MCG. I think it's fair and reasonable as well. So we did well. And you can also have your Monopoly photo taken in a picture booth, uh, which is worth doing, and that's part of the, the price of admission. I was trying to work out how long. I reckon you need to allow an hour at least for the full experience. Very much hands-on, extremely well laid out, really well organised, so much fun. The one thing that they're negotiating with that they do need is more signage because it's quite a large area, Melbourne Central. I mean, various levels and even on the sort of lower ground level where this is, there it's quite a long walkway. And if you enter through La Trobe Street, you have to walk right through to virtually Lonsdale Street, to sort of see it. So the problem is that all the retailers want more signage, but I reckon Monopoly Dream should have it because it takes up, I don't know, any other retailer that takes up 10 retail outlets, and especially because they've got the 16-year lease, I think that's fair and reasonable. So I'm bidding on their behalf. But look, if you want to find out more, go to monopolydreams.com.au. I reckon it's going to especially appeal to teenagers and adults of all ages. You know, yeah, okay, if you're a, a, a five-year-old, you might get something out of it, but I reckon you're going to get more out of it as a teenager and as an adult. To g give you an idea of pricing, I'd be interested to see what you think, guys, of, of the pricing I give you. Kids under under three are free, but three to 15, it's $38.50. And for adults, it's $49.50. So what do you think of those prices? And compare that to going to the footy, Greg. And yeah, going to the theatre as well. Yeah, very good. Yeah. More expensive than going to the footy, but it's probably cheaper than going to the theatre. Yeah, not not more expensive for me going to the footy, Greg. I'm 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 I have to pay because I'm an MCC 
provisional member and an Essendon member, I'm paying a hundred bucks a game now, mate. It's expensive for going to the footy. So, but so is, I mean, Hey, you're the one who's paid a thousand dollars to see the, the boss, haven't you? So, you know, sure, sure. But that was in New York on Broadway as a one-off, it's a one-off experience. That's true. No, that's true. Uh, look, having said that though, Broadway shows, Greg, are very expensive. They're, they're, in, in if you equate it to Australian dollars, it's dearer than Australia. Yeah, but they, they have something called uh, the cheap tickets there to yeah, and get some really cheap tickets. You know, like about twenty five bucks at some of those year shows in. But we have compared to up for an hour or so. We have that too. We've got half ticks in Melbourne, and yeah, and they're located now. I'm not sure. Well, they were. At I, don't, the, I haven't seen them for a long time. They used to be in the town hall. There. They they were at the town hall, but th- there's actually another one that I noticed as well. I'm not sure. Hang on, I'm just googling now. Half price theatre tickets in Melbourne, and let's see. There, there, there were at least two outlets when I last checked, which is probably about six months ago. Yeah, half ticks is there, and how does it work? Today ticks is another one. T I X, by the way, folks. Today ticks is another one. So yeah, I mean you can still, but the idea of queuing and all that sort of stuff is, you know, it won't appeal to everybody. Let's be honest. So anyway, it's, where are they located, Alex? You're looking out where they're located. Which, uh, half ticks or, or which one? The, the yeah, today. Them. Okay, well, hang on. I'm now today ticks. Uh, set an alert for last-minute theatre tickets for Melbourne shows at best prices. Get exclusive access to our digital lottery and mobile rush tickets. Mm. That's what it says with today ticks. Half ticks. Because you'd go in for some of these, wouldn't you, Greg, if you if you could get them? Wouldn't you? If one at time and over exactly enough, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I'm just look, okay, I'm, I'm looking at half ticks. Half ticks Melbourne... Okay, well, this is interesting. Yeah, it's a, it seems like a different location. Feature, a, a, featuring events. So, mate, okay. Oh, I reckon you should go to this. One of them is out, the Hour of the Wolf at the Malt House. Elvis, there you go. Um, these are just some of the things that are on there now, but I still can't find the location. A, a, events available about us. Yeah, anyway, look, folks, you can... 208 Little Collins Street, I found. There you go. Okay, so yeah, so if people want to go to the theatre. That's that's a way of going around it. But Monopoly Dreams, I I really I really enjoyed it. I, I both Nadine and I had a great time. We had a really nice night. You know, ended off. We start off with sort of family friendly entertainment, and we end with R rated shock gore horror. What 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 a complete evening. <laughs> you know, which is wheat. Which is which? Several hours of entertainment. Yes, exactly. So, so that was that was great. Now. I want to also mention a couple of other things that that are on that we I don't think we spoke about last week. Correct me if I'm wrong. And, and we didn't have a show last week. Oh, we didn't have a show last week. There we go. Well, we we replayed last week's. Yeah. So okay, there, there's quite a few uh, shows on at at the moment in terms of theatre, and one of those things that is on is Dogfight at Chapel Off Chapel. Now, did did either of you ever see the movie with River Phoenix? Yes. You did. Okay. I found the subject matter is really just, it made my skin crawl. You know, you talked about that with regards to Hunger Games, Peter. But, um, you know, this is one that uh, plays till the 26th of November. And um, cyberbullying, unfortunately, is, un- is, is rife in society today. Physical appearance is a common reason why that, you know, cyberbullies sort of pick on people. And, Dogfight in in the context of this musical refers to that practice among Marines of placing bets on ugly women, and it's the story of Eddie Birdlays about to turn twenty one. It's the twenty first of November nineteen sixty three. Why is that day significant, Greg? Trivial pursuit question again. What's the date Twenty first of November nineteen sixty three. Oh, Jay, if I Kennedy. Sorry, Greg. Kennedy wasn't that Kennedy's assassination? Yeah, both of you got that right. Yeah. The day before JFK's assassination, you know, unfortunate sort of demise. But having completed his basic training in San Francisco, Birdlays and a couple of fellow recruits are due to ship out en route to Vietnam the next morning. Before then, it's party time. That involves wagering on unattractive ladies at 50 bucks a shot. And the winner's pot goes to the Marine that brings the worst looking. So pretty, really, really ugly. And Eddie meets an idealistic waitress called Rose Fenny in a diner and invites her along. And the another of his recruits, Boland, or his, his mates, breaks the established rules of the dogfight by doing a deal with Marcy, and Marcy's a street smart prostitute and wants her to act as his date. 
but things backfire spectacularly for both Birdlace and Boland. Despite her disgust when she catches out Birdlace, the delightful Fenny gives him a second chance. I don't know why she would, but there you go. And even though Birdlace's aggression continues to cause some issues, the pair connects. Their all-too-brief encounter, though, is followed up four years later when Birdlace returns to San Francisco with the horrors of war etched all over his face. It's an adaptation of a 1991 coming-of-age drama, the one that Greg spoke about with River Phoenix and Lily Taylor. The book of the musical is by Peter Dushan. Music and lyrics by Benj Pasek and Justin Paul. It opened off-Broadway in July 2012, and given the fraught nature of the subject matter, I reckon the theatre company Theatrical has put on a strong production featuring several talented performers. From the opening moments of this, Antoinette Davis mesmerises. She's just brilliant, beautiful, rich texture to her voice. She acts up a storm, loved what she did. Daniel Naborski has sweet resonance as her first crush, Eddie, who deftly straddles the emotional roller coaster required of his role. And also impressing are Joss Doreen, who brings ugly menace to his portrayal of Boland, a character I mentioned earlier. And Tristan Sakari sort of brings this run with a pack mentality to the uncertain character of Bernstein. Madeline Pratt makes her mark, bringing attitude and sass to Marcy the prostitute. Pip Mush's direction, sound and engaging. Musical direction from Timothy John Wilson. Done a fine job with a six-piece band. Lighting and sound are solid, but I wasn't as sold on the staging. I, I found it largely bland and not as interesting as I would have liked. But what it does do, and they did this deliberately, is it allows the lighting to take over and, and make its mark to sort of show different facets of this show. And that was a deliberate act. So I also like the signage, though, and the pendant lighting signage for you know, promoting Uncle Sam and San Francisco chewing gum and other things. And it's period signage, which does well. And the pendant lighting, there's a dozen pendant lights that come from the ceiling, which works very, very well. The, the sprawling set, though, takes full advantage of the st- full stage. But there, there's a series of low-rise stairs built into the, which, which sort of means that there's a lot of movement up and down, up, uphill and down dale. So, you know, that's the staging of the thing. But overall, it's, 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 it's got, it's a good, it's a, it's a, it's a good musical for those people who are prepared to look, a, look away from the actual subject matter. But I mean, that's the point that is meant to be, it, it's like Hunger Games. It, it, it preys upon the ick factor, the ick factor. There's that word again. So it, it's got bite. There's no question, no pun, pun intended. Dogfight has bite as it builds momentum momentum to what is a devastating conclusion. And it's on a chapel off chapel until the 26th of November. So you've got a week to see it, folks, if, if you want to go along. And that's our day done. I've got to say, I'm going to love you and leave you, Peter. Thank you very much. And Gregory King. And we'll do it all again next week on First on Film and Entertainment. Look forward to it. Good idea.